October 22 is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome to the Adventist History Podcast, episode number 48, The Daily. Last time, we talked about the San Francisco earthquake and how it damaged the Pacific Press publishing offices, which were rebuilt and later bought by Google. Yay! We talked about William Ward Simpson and his creepy paper mache beasts, and we talked about Ellen White's campaign for Adventists to get busy preaching in the cities, which we are still working on. Anyway, time to remind you all who is buttering this bread. So let me say, this episode of Avenus History Podcast is sponsored by The Haystack. The Haystack is a voice for young adults in the Seventh-day Adventist Church that produces articles, music, reviews, videos, and more. So to check them out, go to thehaystack.org. The Haystack, life, culture, theology, and small animals. Anyway, on with the show. It's January 1910. The longtime editor of the Pacific Press, Charles Jones, notifies Willie White that the printing plates to one of his mother's best books were worn out. They couldn't print another edition of The Great Controversy without making new plates. So, if there's anything you want to change, Willie, let's do it now. Initially, Willie only wanted to fix punctuation and stuff like that. But Ellen White seized the opportunity to go further. She said she appreciated the great controversy, quote, above silver or gold, end quote. Ellen wanted the book to be sharper and more persuasive. When she first wrote the great controversy, she never properly cited the 417 or so quotations which she used. Now she wanted them cited properly, but finding those sources after 30-some years was, let's say, fun. She had read them in John Andrews's library in Switzerland, and honestly, who knows where those books are right now? So Willie started the great human Google search of 1910. Enterprising Adventists around the world were encouraged to visit the great libraries of London and New York and Paris and Berlin to hunt down the sources of these quotes. It wouldn't be easy. It would be hours and hours and hours of pouring through history books. But the prize, the prize for whoever could find the most quotes, was a year's supply of veggie meat and a signed photo of Ellen White in a banana costume. <laughs> I'm totally tripping. All right, there's no prize. Mom just needs your help, kids, so get to school. Most of the quotes were found, took months. And meanwhile, some Adventists were growing suspicious. If Ellen White was a prophet, why was she revising her own book? Was it not written perfectly the first time? Willie White flatly denied that the book was being quote-unquote revised. Instead, he said it was being reset. <laughs> As the months rolled on, Willie's denial appeared to be a distinction without a difference to many people. Suspicious Adventists began hunting for suspects. Ellen White couldn't be blamed. She was 83 and a prophet. But by now, Ellen White's writing operation involved a swarm of helpers. 
When Ellen wanted the right steps to Christ, her worker bees buzzed through the archives of her writings to come up with a collection of chapters that would comprise the new book. Queen Ellen approved it all, of course, but that didn't stop some from wondering whether the dear old lady might be tricked by some busy little bees. This conspiracy stuff drove Ellen and especially Willie absolutely crazy. Okay, for the record, Ellen Willie never believed that every word Ellen White ever wrote was inspired. We will get to this issue in a future episode. Suffice it to say, they believed her thoughts were inspired when writing books like The Great Controversy. So if she later thought of a better way to explain that thought using different words, all the better. Anyway, when it came to The Great Controversy, one worker bee in particular was suspected. William Warren Prescott. Willie White had asked Prescott to suggest some changes to the book. It made sense. Prescott was Adventism's resident scholar in the chair of John Andrews and Uriah Smith. But unlike either Smith or Andrews, Prescott was the highest trained individual the church had yet seen. Prescott went to Dartmouth. He was Ivy League. He ate Latin for breakfast while he read the classic Greek authors. He was always near the top of his class in school, and this made him one of Adventism's greatest intellectual assets. But it also painted a target on his back that he wore for the rest of his life. We'll get to that in a few minutes. So Prescott sent Willie White a 39-page letter with just some of the changes he would want to make to the great controversy. You know, just a few of the things he could think of off the top of his head. In the original version of the book, Ellen White had written that the Waldenses were the first people in Europe to have a translation of the Bible in their own language. Prescott, in one of his notes, said that the Goths had the Bible in their own language much earlier. So all in all, about half of his suggestions were accepted. His suggestions were mostly in the interest of greater historical accuracy. But greater historical accuracy often means retreating from positions that cannot be defended. So the 1888 edition of the Great Controversy said that the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre began when the bell of the St. Germain Church rang. Now Prescott noted that historians were divided over whether that happened, so Ellen White changed it in the 1911 edition to say simply that a bell tolled. In the 1888 edition, Ellen White had written that the Pope styles himself Lord God the Pope. Prescott noted that he's never found evidence that a Pope has called himself that, but he has found places where other Catholics have called the Pope something like that. Okay, so Ellen White made the change in the 1911 edition to say he has been styled Lord God the Pope. It seems like such a minor change. But to many Adventists, it truly felt like a retreat from positions which they had vigorously defended for decades. It reminds you of Uriah Smith's slippery slope reasoning in 1888. If we soften up on this, what next? How long before we just give up the whole thing? Honestly, it's still a question many Adventists are asking, because this retreat to more defensible ground, whether that be in terms of history or science or whatever, this retreat to more defensible ground has basically been the trend for the past hundred years. Yes, it's done in the interest of being 
historically accurate or using better hermeneutics or whatever, but it still feels like a retreat. And after a hundred years, where does it end? I can't answer the question, but I can tell you that Ellen White supported Jones and Wagner's efforts to be more biblically accurate in 1888, and she supported her own work being made to be more historically accurate. Now, the basic difference between the 1888 Great Controversy and the 1911 Great Controversy, which if you have a copy of the Great Controversy, that's pretty much the one you have, the difference was explained by Willie White many years later. The 1888 edition was for Adventists. The 1911 edition was designed to be read by all Christians. So it was a little softer. Ellen White stopped using the word Rome-ish to describe Catholics because she learned that many Catholics considered that to be an insult. She didn't intend to be insulting, so there it goes. Some pages that imagined Sunday keeping Christians actively and knowingly doing the work of the devil were left out of the 1911 edition. To Adventists going through Sunday law persecutions, they could easily imagine and, and perhaps relate to those pages. But she wanted the last edition of the book to be judged on its scriptural arguments alone. She didn't want other Christians to be reading it and be so offended by passages like that that they, they didn't give her arguments a fair chance. It just wasn't worth it. And despite wanting the book improved, she didn't support all of Prescott's efforts. In fact, the changes that Ellen White improved were actually fairly conservative. Prescott had his own ideas also about the 1260-year prophecy. Adventists believe that that prophecy began in 538 CE, whereas Prescott thought that 533 was more accurate. Adventists believe that the 2300-year prophecy began in the autumn of 457 BCE, but Prescott argued for the spring of 457, not the autumn. Now, again, those don't seem like big deals. But in the latter case, it would mean that the 2300-year prophecy would end in the spring of 1844, meaning that nothing happened on October 22nd, 1844. Miller, who first thought Jesus might come in the spring, was right, in Prescott's view, the first time. The whole seven-month movement with Samuel Snow was wrong. Ellen White, of course, thought that Samuel Snow was correct. When news that Prescott had tried to push his peculiar views on Ellen White leaked, which, of course they did, many Adventists were horrified. It seemed devious to try and get your interpretation legitimized by slipping it under the nose of an 84-year-old woman. Now, Prescott wasn't trying to be devious. He just wanted Ellen White to consider his views. She did, and she rejected them. Nevertheless, Willie White would spend the rest of his life explaining to Adventists every few years, listen carefully, no one tampered with the great controversy. So, yeah. Prescott then spent the majority of his 50 years working for the church with a target on his back. To be sure, Prescott was often on the wrong side of things. During the great 1888 General Conference session, Prescott had sided with George Butler. He instinctively rejected A.T. Jones's plebeian showmanship. And when the session was over, Prescott was among those elders from Battle Creek who infuriated Ellen White by trying to tell her what to preach about. Prescott was won over to the message of righteousness by faith by Ellen White, but only to end up joining Jones in believing that Anna Rice was the next Adventist prophet, which would be a great Adventist 
reality show. Anyways, after that, he toyed around with pantheism, which he infected John Harvey Kellogg with. I mean, Kellogg's defense later was that he was only teaching what Prescott had taught him, right? Who am I to challenge Mr. Ivy League over there? Ooh. And then, of course, he wanted to tweak Adventist interpretations of prophecy, as we mentioned. Prescott also believed in the Trinity, which courted the fury of our old friend Judson Washburn. Washburn thought the Trinity was such a heathen monstrosity that he went completely ballistic on Prescott many years later, refusing to even consider Prescott a real Seventh-day Adventist. So was Prescott always right? No. In fact, he was pretty remarkably wrong on some of these big controversies in the church. But the effect of the waves of criticism he had to endure his whole life sent the message you have to think like us. Different is dangerous. Prescott wanted accuracy and integrity. Uriah Smith wrote hugely popular books that mentioned Jesus wasn't God, and it just drove Prescott bonkers. There were errors in some of these old books that needed to be corrected. Now, part of Prescott's struggle was that it was hard for him to fit in because Adventists had a rather ambivalent relationship with intellectuals by default. Sure, Adventists loved having gladiators like John Andrews and Uriah Smith go toe-to-toe with critics in the intellectual arena. But there was a strong anti-intellectual culture in the church. Blame the Methodists for that one with their emphasis on practical piety while the cool kid Calvinists sent their kids to Princeton to learn how to argue with everyone for a living. The appeal of the Adventist movement was that any average dude with a Bible and a concordance could arrive at the same truths. The founding story of the movement was that this William Miller guy only needed his Bible and a concordance and he figured out what all these stuffy scholars had overlooked for centuries. You didn't need Greek or Hebrew or this fancy words like hermeneutics. In fact, it seemed to be the intellectual types that kept showing up in the Adventist story as the villains, from the Jewish leaders to the Catholic cardinals in the Middle Ages to the 20th century Christian intellectuals who gave up on believing the Bible was inspired. The good guys were described with words like humble and simple. After all, hadn't the Jewish leaders known the prophecies of Jesus' birth? Hadn't they missed it? Who figured it out? Some shepherds, a few pagan wise guys from Iraq or Iran. Women! I mean, women figured it out, people! And of course, that priest named Zacharias, but Most of the believers in Jesus were non-elites, and Jesus seemed deliberate about choosing non-elites. One Adventist editor wrote, quote, The fault in the Jewish teachers which led them to place tradition above gospel may be attributed to the influence of certain Greek philosophers who were much admired by the Jews. Foremost among those Greeks ranks Plato. He reverenced intellect and exalted it above the God of truth. Platonism, then, is the exaltation of intellect and reason without the accompanying works. This is the highest form of paganism. That is what modern educators are hugging to their bosoms when they advocate the learning of the noted Greek and those authors whose teaching is based upon his 
philosophy, end quote. To this Adventist editor, Platonism was the religion of the intellect. Platonism had nothing to do with, you know, what Plato actually taught. It was simply the highest form of paganism. Therefore, anyone who might seem to be leaning too much on their intellect could be credibly called pagan. Did I mention that Prescott received a classical education at Dartmouth? Did I mention that he read Greek for breakfast? Yeah. So Adventist intellectuals then and now occupy this weird space. Adventists know they need intellectual champions, but they're also hesitant to fully trust them. I read a perceptive comment in the recent book about George Knight, who we interviewed early on in this show. Knight is an Adventist scholar who tips sacred cows for a living. So moo-moo, suckers. You either love him or you can't stand him. But what this author said was that Knight could get away with tipping sacred cows because he has proven his loyalty to the faith time and again. So did John Andrews. So did Uriah Smith, but William Warren Prescott? Maybe. The reality is just that intellectuals often have to go further to earn trust by demonstrating loyalty more than most other Adventists. There's something about Adventists that primes them to believe that those wizards in the ivory tower are conjuring heresy in their Kellogg-shaped cauldrons, They'd sell out Adventism just to impress their smarty-pants friends at their smarty-pants parties writing in their overpriced smarty-pants journals. The thing is, Adventists know they need these nerd wizards to protect them when the pagan orcs come banging at the gates. Okay, can we just drop the metaphors now? Okay, despite the concerns that some Adventists had about Prescott, he was the one the church turned to when they had some big questions about history. In a few cases... There was a local Adventist preacher who had made some big criticism of the Catholic Church, and a local priest would read it and challenge the preacher to prove it. Cornered, the preacher would write to Prescott and ask him to hunt down the quote, please. And I want you to take a moment and appreciate the significance of this request in the early 1900s. Prescott would go to the Library of Congress and consult with scholars at the Catholic University of America and search through who knows how many books to see if this preacher's quote could be found. Eventually, Prescott just published his own book of Catholic quotes and encouraged preachers to just use one from there. So Prescott did a lot of things for the church, a lot, but there were just always those times where Prescott couldn't seem to get out of his own way. That brings us to the issue which nearly drove Prescott out of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. That's right, history nerds, we're finally talking about the daily. I've been thinking hard about how to explain this controversy to you because it's deeply rooted in Daniel 8.14 and how that text has been interpreted through Adventist history, but I also don't want to spend forever on the ins and outs of it because, well, it's hard to do over a podcast. Okay, this debate really... It's just a huge waste of time. A huge waste of time. Those guys would have been better off spending their time trying to set the Guinness World Record for the tallest stack of hymn books than to argue about this, but argue about this they did. So guess what? We get to talk about it now. Okay, so what's this daily thing about? Buckle your seatbelt. 
It's theology time. First, a little background, or a lot of background. Okay, in Daniel 8, we read about this little bighorn power that is super full of himself. Little bighorn takes away what Daniel calls the daily. Most translations add the word sacrifice after the daily, meaning that little bighorn stops the daily sacrifice, presumably in the temple. To many Christians of yonder year, this little bighorn dude represents Rome, specifically the Rome of the papacy, the Pope. That part was not controversial. The question was what this daily was that the papacy was trying to take away. Simply put, back in the day, William Miller thought the daily was paganism. That is, Christian Rome rose up and destroyed pagan Rome. Now, after the great disappointment, the Millerites went back to the drawing board. O.R.L. Crozier, and that, duh, the word sacrifice really should be a part of this passage. It was understood that that's the daily that Daniel was talking about. So if the papacy is taking away the daily sacrifice and destroying the temple, it must be happening in heaven. We're not talking about earth. To Crozier, the daily referred to Jesus' constant intercession for his people in the heavenly sanctuary. How did the papacy remove this? By insisting that people had to go to a priest for forgiveness, by calling the Pope the head of the church and not Jesus. You get it. Well, Joseph Bates, James White, and John Andrews, the three J's, all accepted Crozier's belief that Daniel was talking about the heavenly sanctuary. Obviously, Jesus did not come back to cleanse some earthly sanctuary. But they still held that the primary meaning of the daily was, as William Miller had said, paganism. When Uriah Smith wrote his book on Daniel and Revelation, he strengthened the interpretation of the three J's, that hybrid view between Miller and Crozier. And because Uriah Smith wrote it down, it became the gospel truth, conversation over. But not for Ludwig Conradi, who oversaw the Avenus work in Europe. In 1900, he and some friends had basically come to agree with Crozier in thinking that Miller was wrong. The daily was not about paganism. It was about how the Catholic Church has taken over the priestly role of Jesus. He sought feedback from people like Prescott and W.A. Spicer and Willie White and Uriah Smith. Now, most people were intrigued by this new interpretation and encouraged him. Most people, not Uriah Smith. If Uriah Smith decided to curse once in his life, it'd probably be something like not another beeping liberal so, Conradi published his book on Daniel in German. No harm done, because who cares about German books? Prescott, too, had been thinking over the issue of the daily, and he also asked Uriah Smith for his thoughts on the subject, which were, in my imagination, not another beeping liberal. The old guard, now led by Stephen Haskell, was as indignant as Uriah Smith. They stood for the old view of the daily, that is, that it represented paganism. I'm sure someone pointed out that Crozier's new view was actually only a few years newer than Miller's, so it's really a contest between the old view and the slightly older view, but we're just going to call it the old view and the new view. Prescott understood that this was not a salvation issue, but he thought it was a beautiful truth. So instead of being a prophecy about some obscure shift of power in the Roman Empire 1,500 years ago between paganism and papal Rome, Daniel 8, in Prescott's view, was about how Jesus is interceding for us in the sanctuary. Why not teach that idea? What could go wrong? 
The General Conference Committee encouraged him to write about his views. But, as is often the case, the issue we're arguing about really isn't what we're arguing about. What we're really arguing about is that the second-generation Adventists with their new view are trying to change our historic beliefs again. What's more, they're challenging Ellen White, because Ellen White in 1850 wrote that she agreed with Miller's interpretation of the daily, or so it seemed. So when Conradi and Prescott teach this new heresy, they are rejecting Ellen White. Now, Prescott stayed out of it at first. He was the editor of the Review, after all, and there's something about journalistic uh, neutrality or something. But then Prescott fell victim to his fatal weakness, his kryptonite. Stephen Haskell was updating his book on Daniel, and Haskell sent Prescott a copy to look over and offer feedback on. Oh, you know how this is going to go. When Prescott got to the chapter on Daniel 8, he wrote that Haskell should consider dropping his old view because it was only a matter of time between the old view is just tossed in the trash. The sooner the better, Prescott said. I just picture Prescott looking at Haskell's book. It's open to chapter 8, and there he is with a pencil in his hand, and he knows he shouldn't write these things in the margins. He knows he should be a little bit more diplomatic and just let it go, but his hand is shaking as it is inexorably drawn to the page. He can't help himself, but he's got to correct things that he thinks are wrong. This was vintage Prescott. If you set a book in front of him and ask for feedback, he's going to give it. And I don't know. I might have put my finger to the wind and realized that this was a pointless fight and just not commented on Haskell's views of Daniel 8, but Prescott couldn't help himself. He would be liable for allowing error to be published. Okay, said Haskell. It's going to be like that, is it? Well, I'm on Ellen White's side. Haskell then asked Ellen White if he could, you know, swing by sometime and just talk about life and the weather and the stock market and and rodents of unusual size, and, oh, maybe we could find time to talk about how this rogue intellectual is twisting your writings and trying to destroy the foundations of the church. You know, if we have an extra five minutes. When word of Haskell's intentions to go meet with Ellen reached Willie White, he informed Prescott. Prescott then told Willie to stall him. Don't let Haskell see your mother until Arthur Daniels can get there to present the other side. But then Prescott decided to come himself. So it's beginning to sound like Prescott is going to put some fur on his arms and trick Ellen White into blessing him instead of that Esau Haskell. I mean, do you really think Ellen White is so daft to believe the first person who tells her something? I mean, is she a prophet or not? Anyways, the race was on. The first person to convince Ellen White wins. That's how we find Prescott, Haskell, Willie, Loughborough, Daniels, others in one of Ellen White's rooms without her, by the way. Oh, what a surprise we all happen to meet on the other side of the country like this, guys. Say, while we're here, purely coincidentally, why don't we discuss the daily? Might as well. But they might as well have avoided it because everyone simply left the meeting and more convinced that they were right. Willie, Daniels, and Prescott were all on the new team. Loughborough, Butler, and Haskell, the old guard, were on the old team. It was yet another intergenerational conflict. Leaving that meeting, Haskell wrote a stinging letter to Daniels about Prescott, 
casually reminding the General Conference president of some of the errors that Prescott had previously believed. The goal of Haskell's letter was basically to show off his rhetorical guns. So, you know, Prescott had better drop his if he knows what's good for him. Haskell told Ellen White's staff that if it came down to a spiritual shootout, he would not be responsible for what he hit. Returning home, Prescott wrote a series of articles on the Daily. Haskell responded that he would be happy to publish some things on his own, so Prescott backed down. But a previously scheduled advertisement for Prescott's article still went out, promising readers of the review an amazing set of articles from the pen of William Warren Prescott. Cheering! Yay! That was a boneheaded move politically, and it did not help anything. So Ellen White jumps in. She tells Prescott not to make a mountain out of a molehill. There was a danger in fixating on this issue, she said. Leave it alone. She told Haskell just to chill out as well. All of this frustrated Prescott. Why was Ellen White writing to him alone? Why not write to Wilcox, editor of Science of the Times, who believed the same thing? Why not write to Daniels? Why not write to Conradi? Haskell's letter, his stinging letter, landed in Prescott's hands too. And to make matters worse, when he got home, he learned his wife had cancer and was nearly dead. Daniels feared that one more blow would drive Prescott out of the church, or worse. Well, Prescott's wife got better, and the General Conference Committee again asked him to write about the book of Daniel in the review, which, of course, would include some thoughts on the daily. Great, so Prescott began the series. But again, he was told to stop by the time he got to Daniel chapter 3. Haskell kept busy, too, firing off letters in every direction. He wanted Daniels and Prescott fired and given jobs where they could do less damage. He then printed an old prophecy chart from 1842, one that Ellen White had explicitly endorsed back in the day and which clearly showed Miller's view of the daily. If Ellen White had endorsed this chart, everything on it must be true. Haskell also wanted Ellen White's early writings book republished because that was the one book where she talked about this issue. That's right. In everything Ellen White ever wrote, this was the only time she talked about this issue, 1850. Well, Ellen White's team said no on republishing one of Ellen White's books just to attack his enemies. Haskell was disappointed and couldn't see why that would be a problem. So he called his efforts to republish the book One Great Battle, in which he was defeated and it, quote, nearly overcame him, end quote. If he could only win this contest with Prescott, he said, he could die in peace. Conspiracy theories abounded as to what was really going on behind the scenes. Prescott responded to Haskell, saying he could think of a few things Haskell had done that Ellen White had rebuked him for, too. He then added graciously that he didn't, quote, think it was kind or wise to watch for each other's failings and make charges of this kind, end quote. Now Haskell admitted that the whole daily issue wasn't really that important. What was important was rescuing Ellen White from people like Prescott, who, however sincerely, were undermining her. Haskell had to save Ellen White. Daniels saw it differently in the exact same way. He wrote to Willie, because of course they seldom address letters to each other, they just sent their letters through Willie. Daniels told Willie that 
Those who believed the old view were undermining Ellen White. So both sides wanted to save Ellen White. Naturally, someone who believed in the old view snuck into the general conference and grabbed copies of private letters Ellen White had written to church leaders and then began to spread some of the negative things that she had written in an effort to discredit and smear Daniels and Prescott. I mean, seriously. At the 1909 General Conference session, one of the old guards circulated a brochure again, charging the New View Adventists as undermining Ellen White. Ellen White, during this General Conference, decided that Prescott shouldn't be the editor of the Review any longer and told the delegates. Haskell claimed victory. Prescott, in the opinion of Daniels, handled it humbly and honorably. The new leaders of the Review agreed with Prescott's view of the Daily, W.A. Spicer, one of the editors, joked that he envied Conradi and asked Conradi to leave the door of Europe open in case Spicer needed a job sometime soon. That didn't stop Haskell's Rascals, which is really what they should be called. Tasting blood in the water with Prescott's demotion, they went after Daniels. They circulated more attacks on the integrity of church leaders. Loughborough wrote his own manuscript on the Daily, which Haskell dutifully published. This was the time when Ellen White was frustrated with Daniels for not pushing for more evangelism to be done in the cities. Her frustration with Daniels was no secret. Judson Washburn got a hold of some of the private things Ellen White had written about Daniels and published them. Uriah Smith's son, defending his dad's honor or something, spread news in whispers like, Shh, just wait. Soon Ellen White is going to tear into these heretics any day now. She's really going to let them have it. After Champions of the Old View nearly dethroned Daniels in 1909, Daniels decided to go on offense. He brought Prescott back to teach on the Daily. In 1910, he himself read a 50-page manuscript that he had written on the subject. And then he went to Nashville and again pushed for the new view. Ellen White stepped in in 1910. The woman Haskell had once wanted to marry told him not to use her words as weapons. She told Daniels, quote, I do not know what the daily is, whether it is paganism or Christ's ministry, end quote. Then she told Haskell, quote, I have been instructed that regarding what might be said on either side of this question, silence at this time is eloquence, end quote. Ellen White gave some balanced wisdom for all sides. Uriah Smith's book has done a lot of good in convincing people of the truth. Could there be minor mistakes in it that needed correcting? Yes, she said. But in our zeal to correct those mistakes, let's not destroy the influence of the book altogether. The same counsel could be applied in how we deal with each other, too. We need to be careful to protect the honor of fellow believers. Easier said than done. Ellen White's words seem to cut the legs out of both sides. For Haskell and Washburn and others on their team, they were simply defending something Ellen White had said. No, Ellen White was saying, don't drag me into your fight. I don't know what the best way to interpret that text is. So if Haskell couldn't use her words, then he had nothing to argue about. He had no one to defend. But Ellen White also told Prescott and Daniels to be quiet on this issue and stop agitating it. Both men found that counsel frustrating because they had before them a beautiful new truth that placed Jesus, not dates and names, into the center of Daniel. They just wanted the church to study it for themselves. 
There are many reasons why this situation got out of hand. The daily controversy was certainly influenced by the cultural war between Christian fundamentalists and modernists that was going on, where it seemed as if every year the basic tenets of Christianity were being threatened anew. Of course, stubborn personalities played a role. It was also a conflict between the people and the elite. It was a generational conflict as well. Many of the pioneers were dead, and the ones who were left were perhaps a bit hypersensitive about protecting their legacy. But there's another factor at play here as well. Ellen White. In one visit, Daniel said Ellen White had been in the Twilight Zone when he had tried to talk with her about the Daily. And it was clear to anyone with eyes that she had come down harder on Prescott than she had on Haskell and Washburn. I mean, seriously, will someone ever put duct tape over Judson Washburn's mouth? Prescott had comparatively taken the high road, and he seemed to have paid more for it. It seemed very much like Ellen White hadn't grasped the full issue and reflexively sided a little bit more with her old friends. But her counsel was mostly fair. The Daily Controversy was a minor version of 1888 all over again. Back then, Uriah Smith and George Butler had said that if we change our minds about something, we shall be embarrassed and it's a slippery slope. Remember? How long once we go down this slope before we change our minds about everything? Wagner, of course, didn't see it that way. He said if we change our minds, then people will know that we are honest. Two very different principles at work here. During the daily controversy, there was again a fear to change our minds. Prescott felt like Haskell had never seriously studied the issue. Uriah Smith's boy, Haskell, Washburn, Luffrow, and others valued continuity and consistency. On the other hand, Daniels firmly believed, quote, We are a free people in the matter of biblical research. It is idle to say we shall not receive additional light, end quote. Daniels went on, quote, If it can be demonstrated that we have based important calculations upon unreliable historical data, we shall be humiliated and the confidence of the people will be shaken in us. End quote. Both sides were worried about being embarrassed, but one side was worried that changing things would be humiliating, and the other side was worried that not changing things would be humiliating. They had built their faith upon two different ways of seeing things. And this made and continues to make it hard to have a conversation between the two sides. On the surface, it looks like you're arguing over a simple biblical point and whoever has the most evidence should prevail. But if your presupposition is that we got it right the first time, then it is impossible to really consider someone's contrary evidence. To people like this, present truth means adding new ideas to the body of truth you already have. Now, Daniels, Prescott, and others were part of a newer generation of Adventism that believed present truth might sometimes mean changing old ideas you have. There were certain non-negotiables. Nobody believed that God might reveal that the Sabbath is really on Sunday. But on the non-essentials, they were flexible. What's more, Prescott at least saw disputes like these as positive. He said, quote, if there are no differences arising among us, if there are no discussions of these things, it is because we are not advancing, end quote. Against the charge that this more progressive view of Adventism was some new innovation, 
MC Wilcox added an ironic response. He said, quote, It would seem the earlier stalwarts in the message were not so afraid of free investigation as some of our later men in responsibility. End quote. And that was the twist on all of this. Prescott in 1908 was acting like John Andrews in 1855. He was acting like most of the guys in the 1840s and 1850s. When the church was aware that they had been wrong in 1844 and they wanted to know what the truth was. Of course, by the 1900s, many thought they now knew what the truth was. And so there was no need to have that pioneering spirit again, that investigating spirit again. So how do you resolve this kind of conflict? The dispute over the daily is depressing. Many understood that this wasn't a salvation issue, and yet many in the church still savaged each other with personal attacks and dishonest backstabbing. The embers of this fire took decades to go out. This conflict shook people's faith in church leaders and scholars. So again, how do you resolve this kind of conflict? One Adventist historian, Gilbert Valentine, wrote this zinger of a line, quote, the daily conflict illustrates more clearly than anything else, perhaps, that change and development in a church's thinking occur more from the number of funerals it conducts than by the number of Bible conferences it organizes or books it publishes, end quote. In other words, change happens in church more because one of the sides dies than by sitting down with an open Bible and talking things out. Ouch. We all think we are more open-minded than we really are. If you had to pick a winner, however, it was the new view. Butler and Ellen White would be gone in a few years, with Haskell and Loughborough following after that. With Haskell and Loughborough following after that. That almost guaranteed that the new view would prevail. The winner wasn't Prescott, however. He bore the scars of this debate for the rest of his life. In 1915, Willie wrote to Prescott and told him that his mother had always respected him. Willie himself had tried to intercede on Prescott's behalf with his mother and explain how things were really going. Quote, But she could not understand me, and so I put the matter off, thinking the time would come when her mind would be let out upon this matter. I truly wish that there was something I could say or do to cheer your heart. End quote. Willie then quoted for Prescott a few lines from a new book coming out called Gospel Workers. Quote, in this life, our work for God often seems to be almost fruitless. Our efforts to do good may be earnest and persevering, yet we may not be permitted to witness their results. To us, the effort may seem to be lost, but the Savior assures us that our work is noted in heaven and that the recompense cannot fail. End quote. Prescott was appreciative of the letter, but it barely stirred him out of his gloom. His father had just died. And what's more, Prescott's editorship of another Avenus magazine had just ended, and Washburn was throwing a party. Seriously, someone just put duct tape over his mouth for like two seconds. Prescott's letter to Willie is raw. He notices all of these old pioneers dying and wonders whether any of them will ever see the second coming. He laments, quote, It seems to me that a large responsibility rests upon those of us who know that there are serious errors in our authorized books, and yet make no special effort to correct them. The people and our average ministers trust us to furnish them with reliable statements, and they use our books as sufficient authority in their sermons, but we let them go on year after year asserting things which we know to be untrue. 
I cannot feel that this is right. It seems to me that we are betraying our trust and deceiving the ministers and people. It appears to me that there is much more anxiety to prevent a possible shock to some trustful people than to correct error. End quote. Ah, the burden of a scholar's heart. Prescott means the errors like over the daily, which are found in Uriah Smith's book, but about other minor things, too. He appreciated Willie's desire to help him, but said, quote, I fear it is a little late. The experience of the last six or eight years have had their effect on me in several ways. I have had some hard shocks to get over, and after giving the best of my life to this movement, I have little peace and satisfaction in connection with it, and I am driven to the conclusion that the only thing for me to do is to do quietly what I can do conscientiously and leave the others to go on without me. Prescott would recover his optimism, and Willie would continue to be his friend. Together they continued the push for the church to keep learning new truths. In 1931, Willie received a letter from a woman who was concerned about Prescott and the things he taught. She apparently loved to listen to Prescott speak, but didn't like the fact that Prescott taught certain interpretations she didn't agree with. She asked Willie what to do. Willie said he likes listening to Prescott too, and he too is concerned about some of the changes to Adventist prophecy which Prescott wants to make. But, he added, quote, I am truly sorry that anyone should say that Elder Prescott teaches heresy. Elder Prescott is not the only one who is respected, loved, and listened to that teaches differently than his brethren in some matters of not the greatest importance. I do not think that we should accuse such men of heresy, end quote. There was room in Adventism for different ideas on non-essential points. Not every belief is a fundamental one. Let's be gracious with people. Well, if you think Conradi is a lucky dog for having escaped the daily controversy, then think again. Yes, he avoided the skirmish in America over a small theological point and found himself back in Europe. Yes, he avoided the skirmish in America over a minor theological point. But to avoid that minor skirmish, he had to go back to Europe, where he found himself in the middle of the First World War. Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Adventist history content, then go subscribe to Avenus History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Avenus History Project. You can get access to Avenus History Extra on the website, which is avenushistoryproject.org, or by becoming a patron at patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Avenus History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Avenus History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Adventist History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So, if you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the, see the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself. 
but it's a sign up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour so I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. That's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay, I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening.